Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with another Afropop close-up, available when you subscribe to the Afropop Worldwide podcast and in the podcast section at afropop.org. Today, we dig deep into politics and music in the birthplace of reggae. This episode, Political Fiction, Music and Partisan Violence in Jamaica, produced and hosted by Saxon Baird and David Katz. Jamaican popular music has always thrived on social commentary. During the Roots Reggae heyday of the 1970s, some of its biggest stars, like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, found worldwide popularity among overseas listeners by attacking social ills with a unique, liberating message. Oftentimes, it was the politically charged struggles taking place on the island that provided the fuel for this message. Jamaica has long been blighted by destructive urban warfare, fostered by the island's two main political parties. This was often addressed on reggae records, and reggae's wayward offspring dance hall has continued in much the same vein. Yet, if you stretch back to the beginnings of the Jamaican music industry in the early 1950s, before the island achieved its independence from Britain, you'll find that Jamaican popular music already had a long association with the island's fraught political struggles. When does the battle between Jamaica's rival political parties actually begin? And what role does the island's music play in it? This podcast aims to better understand the roots of Jamaica's terribly divisive two-party system and the way that popular music has related to its partisan realities. Hello, I'm David Katz with another Afropop close-up. And I'm Saxon Baird. In Jamaica, there are two main political parties with a conflict-ridden relationship. Its roots lie in the widespread labor unrest of the 1930s. The People's National Party, or PNP, formed by leading barrister Norman Manley in 1938, and the Jamaican Labor Party, or JLP, formed by Manley's cousin, the moneylender and trade union leader Alexander Bustamante in 1943. Animosity between the two parties and their supporters is sparked almost from the very outset. In the history of Jamaica, the 1930s represent a watershed period. During the late 1930s, a series of labor rebellions which begin in the West trigger a large-scale movement for political change in the island. That's Matthew J. Smith, professor in history at the University of West Indies in Kingston. And the labor situation in the country was extremely grave for the workers, both on the plantation sites as well as urban laborers. Uh, Low pay rates, the depression had hit Jamaica very hard as it hit people all across the Caribbean, not just in the United States. As a consequence of that, the economy was very unevenly weighed Uh, where the the, the poor Jamaicans suffered a great deal. There was a a crown colony, the system itself had denied so much of the rights of poor Jamaicans. And so they had very, very strong and just grievances against the system, against the governance at the time. In Jamaica, as in other Caribbean colonies, Labor unrest was provoked by the overriding poverty, with high levels of unemployment and a general lack of civil and political rights. Sporadic episodes of labor unrest begin in 1935 and peaked in April and May of 1938, when Tate and Lyle's sugarcane workers rioted at the town of Frome in Westmoreland. In the capital, Kingston, United Fruit Company dock workers refused to load produce at the wharf, and farm workers downed tools in the northern parish of St. Mary. 
Thousands of strikers across the country brought the declaration of a state of emergency. The unrest resulted in 46 deaths, and hundreds were arrested. Strike, strike, strike. All around me is strike. Strike, strike, strike. All strike, you go on a hike. Jamaica, the land of wood and water. Mother and son, father and daughter. All you can hear from morning till night is strike, strike, strike. Norman Manley and Alexander Bustamante both sought an end to colonial rule, but had very different ideas. During the unrest, Bustamante negotiated better conditions for the strikers and formed the Bustamante Industrial Trade Union, or BITU, in the immediate aftermath of these island-wide protests. Manley formed the People's National Party shortly thereafter, with independence its main agenda. But ideological conflicts saw Bustamante quit the PNP in 1939, as Manley formed the Trades Union Advisory Council, or TUAC, to keep BITU in check heightening tensions between the two leaders and their followers. The Labour Rebellion produced a widespread political movement for reform that resulted in a sort of cataclysmic moment in 1938 that represented the birth of modern Jamaican politics. Music was already playing an important role in this process. Herbie Miller, director curator of the Jamaica Music Museum at the Institute of Jamaica. We spoke to Mr. Miller on his patio in Kingston during a warm February night about the role songs played in the labor strikes of 1938. Songs such as Onward Christian Soldiers would be spurring on these workers who struck against the Tate and Lyle Sugar people. The banana and the port workers were all on strike. It was a nationwide strike. But there were these hymns that were sung. There were these folk tunes that were sung, and of course, blowing of conch shells and beating of drums. And it's out of that that the two-party system, the PNP first and then the JLP, was founded. In September 1940, Manley declared a moderate socialist agenda for the PNP. Bustamante was imprisoned for agitation that same month, and shortly after his release in 1942, began establishing the JLP. Under the leadership of these two strong and charismatic figures, the party's opposing directions became more pronounced during the late colonial phase of the 1940s and 50s. The JLP was strongly identified with the right, and the PNP with the left. Now, Norman Manley, as a leader, not just of the labor movement and the People's National Party, is also a man very driven by ideas. And his, the early ideas that influence him very strongly in party formation are ideas of Fabian socialism. That's the, the type of system that Norman Manley and the People's National Party really support. A member of Jamaica's light-skinned elite, Manley was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford and received his lawyer's training in Britain. Though Bustamante was also light-skinned, he had little formal education and a curious past. Bustamante had changed his name from William Alexander Clark after travels in Cuba and Panama. Bustamante is a very interesting character and, and political figure in Jamaican history. He left at an early period in his life, was away for many, many years, and came back to Jamaica with a whole new name as well as identity in some respects. During his period of travels, a lot of which still remain a bit of a mystery to us, but it is believed that he decided to present himself differently as a person who he felt could be 
absorbed into these societies he was moving through, so he takes on a whole new name. From that, this name, Alexander Bustamante, evolves. But it also creates for him, I suspect, a persona that he uses to sort of push himself more into politics. Bustamante's fiery oration, delivered in patois, helped him connect with Jamaica's poor masses, in contrast to Manley, who was more of a refined intellectual. Bustamante was seen as the figurehead of the labor movement because he had been doing a lot of agitation among wharf workers in Kingston and other labor leaders, he wasn't the only one, there were other labor leaders rallied behind Bustamante and elevated him. In 1944, the first general elections were held in which all adult Jamaican citizens were allowed to vote. The cult of personality already loomed large. Very quickly going into the 1944 general election, it's not so much the workers' union, it's really a clash between Norman Manley and Alexander Bustamante. So you see the personalization of politics evolving very strongly there. Bustamante wins the vote by a landslide, firmly entrenching the division between the two parties. From that period going forward to the present, Jamaica has really only had two political parties, the JLP and the PNP. And of course, official party songs soon became important. Here's Herbie Miller again. But there were also party songs which were sung. Many times the same song was done by both parties. You just change the name. So for example, there's one song that said, um, we're gonna follow Bustamante till we're dead. Busta, you know, they're gonna follow Bustamante until death. There's another song that say, um, may I go buy a penny coffin figure, bury labor right. I go buy a penny coffin figure, bury labor right. Buy a penny coffin figure, bury labor right. Labor dead, done, gone, forever. So there are these party songs. During this period, Jamaica also experienced large-scale urban migration, as peasants from the countryside flocked to the capital in search of work. The massive influx caused overcrowded slums and squatter camps to develop in western Kingston. In this oppressive environment, street gangs naturally formed. Initially, the gangs did not have political affiliation, but that soon began to change when the divide between the rival trade unions and their partisan agendas strengthened. You begin to see that the unions become spaces where you recruit people to support one political party versus another. In February 1946, clashes took place between PNP and JLP supporters downtown, following a strike at the local mental hospital. The ensuing riot resulted in three deaths and the declaration of a state of emergency. Thereafter, both parties began galvanizing support for their downtown battlegrounds by appealing to gang members and common criminals in the shanty towns of inner-city Kingston. Things came to a head in October and November of 1947 in what was known as the Battle for the Streets of Kingston. The first known political gang, the PNP-affiliated Group 69, was formed then at 69 Matthews Lane and played a role in causing Bustamante to cease representing Western Kingston. By the late 1950s, Jamaica's political landscape had become much more complicated. 
and as the local music industry grew in tandem with the nation, Jamaican popular music would begin to comment on social situations with greater frequency. So much so that politicians began co-opting the work of local singers, regardless of the original meaning of their lyrics. Freedom by singer and record producer Clancy Eccles, a powerful song of liberation for black Jamaicans based on a theme of repatriation to Africa. The song was recorded in 1960 when the subject of independence from Britain was being hotly debated. Norman Manley originally supported self-governance, but was persuaded to have Jamaica join the Federation of the West Indies, which Britain had devised for her Caribbean colonies as a phased way to collective independence. The idea of Federation was to have a strong English-speaking Caribbean presence that these different islands should come together and push for independence from England, but form a federation. On the other side of the political spectrum, Bustamante initially supported the Federation too, but ultimately sought full independence for Jamaica alone. As the story goes, the song we are hearing caught the ear of Bustamante, who used it in his campaign to try and smash the Federation, despite its actual call for African repatriation. His main objection? The potential economic burden. The fear on the part of the opponents of Federation was that the stronger islands would have to carry the smaller islands, and that would be too much of a responsibility. As a result of this, a referendum was held in Jamaica and a referendum supported that Jamaica should not go the route of federation. And at that point in time, the federation project began to fall apart. And this happens going into 1962. On the heels of the referendum, a new election is held in Jamaica, and Alexander Bustamante is re-elected leader of the country. In 1962, Jamaica becomes independent from Britain, with Bustamante and the Jamaica Labour Party leading the country, thanks in part to the use of Clancy Eccles' freedom. But the political split across the island was already strong. Political divisions and their associated episodes of partisan violence would continue to mar Jamaica for decades to come. And with it, Jamaica's reggae and dancehall performers would always keep in step with new local developments offering commentary along the way. But Jamaican music has done much more than simply document the island's political evolution. More importantly, it's often been an antidote to the island's political divisions. The music, however, is also a sort of safety lock so to speak, and what could have happened, it also worked as a safety valve. 
to temper the mood of the people or is it could be a greater explosion For more on the story of music and politics in Jamaica, be sure to check out our hour-long program, State of Emergency, Reggae Reflections of Jamaica's Partisan Politics. Production and research for this podcast by David Katz and me, Saxon Baird. And thanks to our financial supporters. This Afropop close-up was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. But to keep this series going, we need your support too. If you've enjoyed this or any of the other Afropop podcasts, please consider giving to Afropop. Just go to afropop.org and press donate. Your help lets us do what we do best. And remember, you can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. And join us next week or anytime you like for another edition of Afropop Worldwide.